love doing that. Uh, I love being down here. I love coming here. Uh, oh, well. Yeah. Um, so I'm supposed to talk about intimacy. I've been making shit up all morning long. Uh, I saw that on the programming. Who the hell came up with that? And, uh, so I'm going to give it a shot. I don't want to waste a lot of time telling my story. It's probably just as pathetic as yours. Um, when you do talk enough, you kind of glitz it up a little so it seems a little more glamorous than it was. Uh, I was a surfer and a biker and a tough guy. And I never went to the beach. My motorcycle rarely ran. And I was afraid to fight. But I looked really good. I had a chrome Nazi helmet for a hat and a primary chain for a belt and black greasy Levi's and big black boots with chains around them. I got tattoos all over me. But I had a clip-on earring because I didn't want to hurt myself. <laughs> My biker nickname was Horny. <laughs> I have it tattooed here on my arm, and it's misspelled. It's H-O-R-N-E-Y. Hornet. With an exclamation mark for emphasis. Well, that's pretty much all you really need to know, isn't it? And, uh, um, if I had hair, I'd probably look like our host. But I ran out of hair. I had a ponytail for a while. But it got down to three strands, so I had to let it go. <laughs> so what happens to us? Something happened on March the 27th, 1985. A remarkable experience happened to me. A stunning, stunning experience. I was 37. Um, and the obsession to drink and use drugs was lifted from me. It took me six months to realize how shocking that was. After I did my fifth step, my sponsor told me, go be quiet for an hour and reflect on the work you've done. And when you walk back into your house, think about the guy that's walking in the house today compared to the guy that walked in there six months ago. And I did that. And it struck me really hard. It struck me. It's going to be like this now. Now, I had really no idea exactly what this was, and uh, but I knew that it was over, that life. And so far, 34 years later, it's proven to be true that that old life is over. Now, some of us have been sober a long time. Sometimes it's hard to remember that guy we were. I see pictures every once in a while. It kind of gives me the creeps, you know. And I remember, I remember the incidences. But I'm not the same person. I'm not that guy. I was sitting with a, a big-time Indian guru some years ago with a friend of mine that was connected to him, and we went to hear him give a, a talk in the, in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, after his talk, we went back to this back room, just the three of us. There was this Indian guy and my friend and I. And I was talking away like I do, and he's looking at me, and he, he started laughing at me. I said, what are you laughing at? And he goes, I just love you alcoholics and drug addicts. And I go, why is that? And he goes, well, the rest of them out there are trying to get enlightened. You're just trying to figure out what the hell happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true about us. You know, the rest of the journey is just like, well, what the hell happened? You know? And we, we get an idea as we're sober, we get an idea of what happened. And so we create kind of a dogma around that and we, and then it fades and we transition into something else. I mean, there's been an evolution that has gone on in my life. There was a, a really wonderful period of time where I figured I really knew exactly what was going on and how it should be done and, and I was filled with the fire. I still am, to be honest with you. But I don't know that I really know. 
anymore. I look at AA now, and you hear a lot of different things about it. I think there's a lot of different doorways into Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I think what our primary problem is is that we're emotionally immature. All of us tell the story. All of us tell the story about how before we ever drank or used anything, we felt insecure and separate from and apart from. And, and we talk about that like it's unique to alcoholism, like it's an aspect of our alcoholism, this feeling of separation. And I don't believe that anymore. I don't think, I think if you've ever had the experience of raising children, you see it in them. You know, when they become teenagers, they're like alien. You ever, you know how you have a little kid and he's looking at you with love in his eyes and stuff and he reaches a certain age, he's got that look and you know what he's thinking is you are the dumbest creature he has ever run across in his short little life. You know, and they go through this phase and you know, they are appropriately self-centered. It's part of growing up. That's the problem with kids. Is they're more self-centered than we are. It's competition. You know? It's competition. When I got sober at 37, my daughter, my, my two younger kids, my daughter was three years old and my son was six months old. And I think I literally grew up with them. Some years ago, we were having a Christmas Eve party at my house, and my daughter and my son and I were in the front room, just the three of us, and we were just talking, laughing, and having a good time together. And my daughter stopped, and she looked at me, and she goes, You know, Dad, you've grown up quite a bit over the years. <laughs> and I was really pleased to hear her say that. You know, I'm 37. I look like I'm an adult. I'm big, you know, and... Uh, after a period of time, I lost, I lost a hundred pounds after I got sober. I got healthy. And uh, it looked like I was going to live. You know, and I started taking care of myself and I got athletic. I started cycling and I looked really good and, and I was going to 800 meetings a week and having a wonderful time and sponsoring half the South Bay of Southern California. And, you know, and I was starting to speak at meetings. I had become somebody finally in my life. I got some recognition and I was, I was having a great time. And my kids grew up and it was time to join the Indian guides. And I'm not gonna do that. I'm, I'm too hip for the Indian guides. I'm not gonna stick a dumbass feather in my hair and wear the stupid vest and go on campouts and stuff. And my wife says, you will go down to the YMCA and sign up for the Indian Princess program. It's father and daughter. You need to have a relationship with your daughter. And I went and I made the mistake of telling my sponsor about this travesty that was being laid upon me because I had people to save and meetings to go to and stuff like that. I can't be bothered with this kind of crap. And uh, he said, go join, be an Indian, don't be a chief. So I go. I join. I don't know. I don't want to do any of that stuff. I don't know how to be a father. Drunk or sober, I don't know how to be a father. It was difficult. And I'll tell you what happened from that. After three or four years of that with her, then my son became of age and we did that. And to this day, we still talk about that stuff. We still talk about what fun we had. I didn't know that it was going to be fun. I thought it was an imposition. You know, I want to do what I want to do all the time. Um, my son got into T-ball, and I was cycling a lot, and I was getting really into it, and I was riding with a club, and I was, you know, Saturdays and Sundays were the long rides. You get up early in the morning, you go 40, 50, 60 miles with a bunch of guys. And my wife tells me that Thomas is going to have a T-ball game Saturday morning. I think you should go. Now, that's when I go riding. You know, you go with them, you know. Women raise the kids, right? Dads are busy, okay? And uh, so I went. I told her, no, I'm not going. I went off with the guys, and I felt guilty the whole time. And on the way back, I cut it short, and I went by the baseball field, and I pulled up, and he was coming up to bat. Five years old, five years old, I think, maybe, with the little 
ball on the top of the thing. And, and I got off the bike and I got up into the stands and he hit the ball and he ran to first base and he turned around and looked and I was sitting there and I said, I will never miss one of these games ever again. And I don't think I did. But I didn't know. I didn't know. What's intimacy? What is it? How do you define it? I think it's like spirituality. It's like God. It's an experience. It's not a concept. We try, we need to understand. We want to know. We want to know what procedures to go through in order to be able to have deep, rich, and fulfilling relationships. And I don't think you can codify that. You can read a lot of cool stuff about it. Most poetry is about it. You know, um, but when I sat up in that stand and he turned around to look to see if somebody was watching him, um, later on in his life I became the videographer for the football team. He invited me into his world and I got to be in the locker room during halftime where the coach was cussing at him and grabbing him by the face mask and looking at me saying, this isn't going on the video, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know and I was down on the field with him. And he was the running back, and he was a little bit too small. Nah. And I thought, he's not going to make it, but he had desire. And he was good. And we were playing Redondo High School, and it was like fourth down, two or three yards to the goal line. And the coach was going to go for it, and he put him in, and the kid ran into the goal line, and he fumbled the ball. They recovered it and scored, and we lost. And he was devastated. He got up off the ground, he tore his helmet off, and he threw it down on the ground. And the coach ran out on the field and got in his face, and he came, and I was smart enough not to try to go talk to him. But I've got some photographs you ought to see of him standing on the sidelines with his face. It was a devastating experience. After the game, I said to him, I said, what did the coach say to you? Was he yelling at you for fumbling? He goes, no. He told me, if you ever pull your helmet off and throw it on the ground like that again, I will make sure you never play again. If you can't handle the fumble, you'll never be any good. Get off your ass. I've never forgotten that. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, if you never want to have anything bad happen, you don't do anything. Stay in the house and play video games. Nothing will happen. If you're going to go out in the world, you're going to fall on your ass. You better be able to get up. That's a life lesson. I learned that at 45 years old on the side of a football field with watching my son. I learned that. And uh, he's my hero, man. That kid is phenomenal. But he doesn't love me enough. You ever get to the point in your sobriety where you're doing a little inventory and the worst thing you can come up with on your resentment list is, my children don't love me enough. <laughs> you actually write that on a piece of paper and you look at it and you go, am I really that pathetic? You know? <laughs> Evidently, yes. You know? um, so two things happened to me that I think are just lucky in AA when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. One is, is I just liked it. Not everybody has that story. The first night, the first meeting I went to was a raucous, crazy meeting in the South Bay at the Hermosa Beach Alano Club on a Friday night. It was called The Gong Show. And uh, it was not what I was expecting. And I remember driving home that night thinking to myself, you know, this may not be so bad. Because it wasn't... My father got sober in 1954 when I was six years old. When he died in 99, he was 45 years sober. So I got raised in AA. And uh, there's some people here that knew my parents. And uh, this was not the AA that my father, that I remember when I was a kid going to AA me. This was something else. This was something else. And I was a lot older and I needed AA. And I was conscious of that for the most part, but I didn't know I was going to like it. And the second thing that happened is I asked the guy to sponsor me, to help me, and he actually helped me, which doesn't always happen, you know. Um, I went to his house every Thursday at 5 o'clock, I think was my time slot, and we read the book together, the two of us. Um, 
He gave me an assignment to read the doctor's opinion, and when I got to his house, he didn't trust me that I'd read it, and he had me sit there and read it to him out loud. You know, I mean, and I did that. I, I thought all of you were doing this. How would I know any different? And, uh, and he brought some things to my attention. And each week I went there, we read another chapter in the book. Sometimes it took two weeks because I had a lot of arguments and questions. And, you know, I was defeated and beaten, but I was still very verbal, you know. And uh, that has never left. And, uh, and I did an inventory at six months sober and a fifth step. And I started making amends before I was a year sober. I started sponsoring people when I was about a year sober. My oldest sponsee just died a couple, three years ago, I think he died. He had a brain tumor. They sponsored that guy for over 30 years. And, uh, and I've never not done that. That's what I do. I get asked to go speak, and the only reason I get asked, I think, is because I'm doing stuff, so I have something, hopefully, to talk about. You know, like you hear people say in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the longer I'm sober, the less I know. When I hear somebody say that, I go, aren't you paying attention? You know, I mean, I know some stuff. I should know some stuff. I should have something for you when you come to me. I was raised in AA like that, to try to be a good channel. Now, initially, when you start doing that work, when I, I'll speak for myself, but I think you're a lot like me. When you start doing that work, um, it's all ego-driven. What else do I know? I don't know anything else. I figure, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be the chief. I don't want to be an Indian. That's where that comment came from, you know. I mean, I'm in central service, general service, and I'm doing this, and I'm in charge of everything, right? And I'm enthusiastic, and I'm sponsoring guys, and I'm reading the book with them. So it's ego-driven. It's all about me looking good. And at 10 years sober, I was a phony AA guru. And I was good at it, I think. You know, my, my own reviews, you know. Did I know that I was phony? No. I don't think so. I was a phony biker with a clip-on earring. And I traded that in for the phony AA guru. A little healthier. You know, some people got helped, you know, but it was all about me. I could not laugh at myself. I wasn't capable of that. It was all very serious. Now, I'm having a good time. I'm doing stuff, but it's all about me. So during this 10-year period, I'm in the Indian Guides. I'm starting to coach soccer. Now, I'm the parent. Whenever you find yourself at a baseball game with your fingers through the chain link fence <laughs> screaming at the umpire with spit coming out of your mouth you've probably overshot the mark <laughs> I was coaching a bunch of eight or nine year olds I think in soccer and they were a horrible team I mean really bad embarrassingly bad and at the half we were losing like eight to nothing or something and I got, I got the team together and I gave them a lecture about personal pride. And you need to go out there and start knocking people over. You can't just walk off this field without somebody being bloody on the other side. You've got to give it something. Don't you have any pride? So the second half starts off and they are just as awful as they were before. So I walked off the field, just left him there. I walked off the field and got on my Harley, because I'm a badass, right? And the Harley's parked in the, in the uh, basketball court area. And this is an elementary school, middle school, right, middle school. And I got on the Harley and I burned rubber out of the parking lot, this, this smoke, and I hauling ass down the street and I ran out of gas. <laughs> really hard to look cool when you're walking down the street with your helmet and your leather jacket, you know. And I get back to my house and I called my sponsor. It was bad enough. I called my sponsor. And I'm telling him what happened, you know. And he says, Bill, it's children's sports. <laughs> and I actually said, you don't 
understand <laughs> the humiliation of it. My wife and I got into a fight on one of many occasions, and I was screaming at her. And I'm six foot five. She's five foot three or four. And I'm screaming at her, looming over her, screaming at her because of what she said to me. It was bad enough that I called my sponsor. I think I actually went to his house. I went to his house to talk to him because I was really angry. I have rage. I suffer from rage. Not so much anymore, but back then I did. When you take away my medication, it comes back. It's never left. It never was addressed. The teenage angst at 40 years old is exactly what it is. It's not a deep, profound, neurotic problem, you know. And, uh, you know, all I need to know about my childhood is it's over. And it was extraordinarily long. I went to his house and I told him what she said. And I told him I was screaming at her. And he stopped and he says, stop yelling at your wife. And so I explained it further because he clearly didn't. I mean, there is a reason why you yell at them. It isn't from a void. You just don't start yelling. They do something and then it requires you to shut them up, evidently, you know. And he just kept repeating himself. He says, stop yelling at your wife. Now, you'll hear some people in AA say that we don't express opinions or give advice. (laughs) I'm a newcomer in AA. I need some advice. You know, I mean, you need to tell me. He didn't care what she had said. He didn't care about her at all. All he was focused on was my behavior. He actually told me one time, I was going on about how I didn't really have friends or anything, and I've been sober a while, and he says, when you're talking to people, Bill, sit down. You're too big. Sit down so you're the same size, right? And he says, and when you're talking to him, don't point. Don't, don't do that. You know, stop that. You know? And, uh, and he says, and finally, smile. You know? I mean, this was news to me. It's embarrassing to say, but I've never forgotten that. I mean, the next time I was in a conversation, I started... (laughs) One time I was in a supermarket with him. I was really new, inside of a year. And we went somewhere, and he stopped at the supermarket to pick something up, and we're coming out of the supermarket, and he's talking to the girl, the checking girl the girl at the, the cash register. And he says, hey, Louise, how you doing? How you doing today? How's it going? And they talked this gabbing away. And so we leave. And I said, did you know her? And he goes, no, never met her before in my life. I says, how did you know her name? He said, Bill, they wear name badges. <laughs> Why would you ever acknowledge one of those people? You know, I didn't. I, you don't know. I didn't know how bad it was. How shut down and disconnected I was. In a doctor's opinion, it says we lose touch with all things human. What a remarkable statement from a non-alcoholic just looking at us, just watching us, that we are not connected to other people. I think in reality we are. We just, we can't see the connection. We don't, you know, when you're self-centered, there's no room for compassion. You know, I learned how to cry at poignant beer commercials. You know, that's about it. I have no depth. The depth of my shallowness knows no bounds. Really, you know. I went to my first shrink when I was 13 because of the rage. I was twice, I was in a mental hospital when I was 22 years old. Locked down, barbed wire on top of the fence, mental hospital. Strung out on speed, drinking like a fish, and just scared shitless. Just scared out of my mind at the life I was leading. I had no business being where I was. And uh, I spent two and a half years in group therapy at one time. I've been to several other shrinks and therapists, and I've been gestalted and rolfed and primal screamed. You know, I know more about myself than is safe to know. But it is my favorite subject, you know. I mean, I'll be in a group therapy situation, and when I run out of stuff to say, I'll just make some stuff up. You know, I like the process. 
I mean, the whole idea, you stop and think of the process is, you know, if I get to the root cause of my problem and I open it to the light of day and look at it and understand it at death and then adjust my behavior accordingly and then I'll be okay. I mean, it sounds really good. You know, I just, I'm not sure that that really works. I'm not sure that it works for alcoholics anyway or drug addicts. You know, maybe it does for other people. I'm sure it does. I have nothing against therapy. I just, matter of fact, I enjoy this, you know. <laughs> but I get to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous is not therapy. Matter of fact, the recovery program I went through, when I, like any good gangster, I called my mother. And uh, <laughs> this is a woman that had been in Al-Anon for 30 years. You know, they're organized and prepared and efficient and focused. And she got there inside of a half an hour and she checked me into this place. And while I was in there, they made me wear a sign around my neck. I had to make the sign. We made it in crafts. A rectangular piece of cardboard with a string that went through it. And it said, I am not a counselor. (laughs) Evidently, there was some confusion about that. But AA is not therapy. It's not therapy. So this 10-year period of the first 10 years sober, I did a lot of sponsoring and a lot of work in AA. I did a lot of stuff. I learned a lot. And uh, I was married to that same wife I had when I got sober, and I had those two small kids. By this time, they were 11, 12, like that. And... uh I had it all. I had a business that was doing fairly well. We had remodeled the house. We're living in the house. People are coming over. We're having AA parties, and I'm sponsoring people. And I'm skulking around in the rooms looking for her. And I found her. And I left that family just before Christmas and ran off with this woman. And my fall from grace was very public, and it was... Awful. This woman I ran off with dumped me. And I'm living in the storeroom over my office in El Segundo, California. And I was as as miserable and ashamed and angry and hurt as I have ever been in my life. It was horrible. Um, The way I describe it now when I look at the whole scenario, when I look at it with hindsight, because that's all we've got, It's like, what is wisdom? What is the wisdom of Alcoholics Anonymous? What's the wisdom that you and I have? Because we have wisdom. And I believe what it is, is experience combined with intellect. With enough intellect to be able to express the experience and share it with others. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. And I'm in this storeroom, and I'm looking for something to cut the pain. I need something to cut the pain. If you and I get in enough pain, we know how to cut the pain. And there wasn't anything there. I looked in the medicine cabinet, and there wasn't anything there. Then I called. After I looked, I called. And I didn't call my sponsor. God forbid. You know. I called a friend. And he asked me, he says, have you eaten? And I didn't know. And he came and got me, and he took me and he fed me, and he took me to an AA meeting. After a couple of days, I walked into my home group, the Hermosa Beach Men's Stag, where we're sober correctly. My host took me to a meeting this morning at noon that was okay, but they did some incorrect stuff there. You know? And uh, I walked into my home group, And this guy, Michael, has known me since I was sober. He comes up to me and he's smiling at me. Because a lot of people were really happy to see me fall on my ass. You know, it was very pleasurable to a lot of folks. Justifiably so. And uh, he threw his arms around me and he hugged me and he whispered in my ear, Welcome to AA. We've been waiting for you. So there's an interesting thing that happens, I've noticed, 
over the years, and some other people have brought it to my attention, that somewhere between 8 and 12 years sober, the wheels fall off. For a lot of us, Don Coyas talks about you know, the, the four seasons. Every four years, there's winter. And you can kind of look at it. And I looked, when he told me that, I looked at it and I went, oh, damn, it was winter. <laughs> you know, it's like something happens. I think what it is is a death of the ego, the beginning of the death of the ego. The big chunks of me fell off. This facade that I had created fell apart. I couldn't maintain it anymore. And it fell apart. And I crashed and burned really badly. Um, I went to my sponsor. We were at a retreat, actually. And I wrote some stuff down. It was so bad, I wrote some stuff down. It was so bad, I wrote some stuff down and went to my sponsor. Both of those things, right? And uh, and I wrote some, and I said, I need some help. I really need some help. I'm in trouble. I'm a mess. I was ashamed. I was really ashamed. I mean, when you actually do the same stuff you were doing drinking when you're sober and there's no excuse for it, it's hard. And you try to justify it, you know, but everybody's looking at you, nodding their head, going, yeah, okay, Bill, yeah, sure, buddy. You know, there's just no justification. It's just plain old bad behavior, selfish and self-centered bad behavior. And I read my stuff to him, and I said, I need some help. And he looked at me, and he said, go find God. And I said, I don't need mindless platitudes. I'm not some newcomer. I need some real practical help. And he stood up, he's short. He stood up and he walked over where I was sitting and he leaned over me and he yelled in my face, which he never did. Never did that. No. And he said, there is nothing else. You talk a good game, go do it. And I had to read the damn 24-hour-a-day book and get on my knees every goddamn morning and do <laughs> prayer and, you know, I mean, call him all the time and, you know, like some wimpy-ass newcomer, you know. Because I'm here to report to you, there is nothing else. Right? You know, I believe that what's going on with us is that we're growing up emotionally. We're growing up now because we missed it when we were teenagers. Most of us were loaded. Most of us, not all of us. Some are worse than others. You know, you know who those people are. There are some people in AA that have virtually no social skills whatsoever, you know. And then there's the rest of us that are very questionable in the social skills, you know. And, and we skipped it and we're gonna grow up now and the chances of us doing that and looking good are really slim. And the real indicator that you're going to have as to where you are on this spiritual path is the quality of the relationships you have in your life. That's what's going to judge it. Not so much the buddies that you have in AA, although that's what we're doing in the fellowship, isn't it? We're practicing. We're practicing on being friends and lovers and stuff. That's what the fellowship's about. But stop and think about this. It is the character defect center of the known universe. You know? It's high school. It's high school with all the drama and the screaming and the hollering and the fist fights in the parking lot. Back in the good old days when AA was real AA, we used to have fist fights in the room, you know. <laughs> back when it was real AA, you know. You know, I've gotten old enough where I go, back in the old days, oh, jeez. <laughs> and the only way we're going to do that is we're going to have a series of experiences that now that we're awake, we're going to learn from the experiences. Now that we're awake. Because before we were missing the experiences or we were just loaded. And now we're going to grow up now. And you cannot speed that process up, but you can sure as hell slow it down. By picking and choosing what you will and won't do. The most spiritual thing you'll hear in AA, get in the car. No joke. No joke. You hear a lot of good, really good one-liners and stuff, but get in the car is a big one. And I got in the car. In those 10 years that I was being the phony AA guy, I learned a lot. It wasn't for nothing. 
My, uh, my dad got cancer. This was a man that I hated. I made amends to him when I was a year sober in the last 15 years of his life. My, my birthday is going to be this Wednesday. It's March the 27th. His was March the 28th. For 15 years, we gave each other birthday cakes in the Hermosa Beach Men's Stag. The man I hated. I had daddy issues. Shocking, isn't it? You know? I mean, he had son issues. He didn't like me much either, you know? And in AA, we reconciled. We got together. That was something we could share. We could share Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I, I, I found my father. I, I rediscovered my father, and he got a son that he was finally able to be proud of. Finally, because there was nothing before then. I didn't do anything. I accomplished nothing. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do anything. I just got loaded for 22. And I got sober in AA, and he could look at me, and he was proud of me, he was proud of his boy. And we started hugging. I had to start hugging because he, he's a depression kid. They don't hug, you know. And uh, I started hugging him. At the end, he couldn't keep his hands off me. And he got cancer. And he was dying in the living room of his house. He was 85, and he didn't want to do the chemo. It wasn't going to save him. So my mother and I took care of him. We changed his diapers, and we, we cleaned him, and we took care of him, took him to the bathroom and took care of him. And uh, brought AA meetings to him. And I had some great conversations with him while he was dying. And uh, I don't have time to go into all that. But it's, it's a remarkable. If you've never had that experience, don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid. What love is, is the action you take that shows how you feel towards someone. Love is a verb. It's what we do for each other. You see it all over Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, even if your motivation is crappy like mine was, you see the love. You can't deny it. You know, we care about each other. We learn compassion from each other, and we try to take that home with us. You know, um... So I had some wonderful conversations with him, and at the end, everything was clean, everything was good. And I was holding his hand one time. My mother and him were married 62 years. My mother climbed up on his bed one time, and Karen and I were in the other in the kitchen. We could hear, though, and we left him alone, and she climbed up on him. She put her arms around him and said, We had a good marriage, didn't we, Daddy? And he stopped, and he thought about it, and he went, Yeah, better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Right up to the end. Right up to the end. A minister came by and said, Mr. Cleveland, would you mind if I prayed over you? And he says, well, it probably won't do any good, but you need to do it, so what the hell? <laughs> it was hilarious. And I watched him relax into it and pass away. And you were there. My sponsor was there. My dad's friends and my friends and we... We're all there. It was a celebration. We had a wonderful memorial for him, you know. One of those wonderful Alcoholics Anonymous sacrilegious memorials where you, you talk about the real person, the real guy, that we love the real guy, you know, the real dude. And, and my dad was a good man. And my mother moved in with Karen and I, and uh, she got cancer and she was dying. And we had her in a hospital bed in the living room of my house. And I was the primary caregiver. We had hospice and stuff, but with my dad, my mother, and I were both doing it. With me, it was just me. Karen was working. She'd be gone. I'd be with her all day. One time, she was time to change the diaper. And uh, this was the first time. And I said, okay. And I was, I was there. I'm going to do this. And my mother started crying, and she looked at me, and she said, I didn't raise you to do this. And I stopped and thought about it, and I was raised in a house that Chuck Chamberlain was at, you know. I mean, these were the people on the west coast of the United States that were building AA that we now enjoy there. This was an AA house. Barbecues would break out at the drop of a hat, you know. There'd be weird dudes with big belt buckles and cowboy hats hanging around the house, you know, and, and just there'd be guys passed out on the back porch when I'd come home. I'd get them up and bring them in the house. They were waiting for their sponsor to come home. It was like that. And I thought about that when she said that to me, and I looked at her and I said, oh, yes, you did. I know what was happening in that house I was raised in. You were saving those people's lives. I know I have a house like that now. So roll over. 
and I changed her diaper. The next time, it was easier. And the third time, she said, Bill, it's time. (laughs) It's just work. That's what love is. That's what compassion is. You had taught me compassion, and I hadn't noticed. I had been to hospitals where people were dying before this. Because you're an AA, if you're active and involved, there's always somebody dying, and there's always somebody having a baby. There's always somebody getting married, and there's always somebody getting a divorce. Sometimes they marry and divorce the same person over and over again. You know? I mean, and you show up, right? You get in the car. You get in the car. When I was new, this guy Gene Jones, who was like a local legend in the South Bay, I didn't know who he was. I'm reading the book with my sponsor. Gene was in the hospital to get a lung removed. And my sponsor brought me to the hospital in order to bring a newcomer so Gene would have something to do while he was there. (laughs) And it was the weirdest experience. (laughs) Why was this guy talking to me? He's getting ready to have surgery. Why was he talking to me? What is that? Why do we do that? My mother passed away. You know, I was there. I miss them. I still have their ashes. I'm supposed to spread them in some place in Arizona, but I'm not ready to give them up yet. I go down there and pat them once in a while. Every so I will have an AA party. Jay, my sponsor, will get my dad's ashes and bring it out and put it in the patio. I think that's a little macabre. You know, but. So I was in the 11-step meeting one night years ago. And, uh. I was share, I shared in the meeting that I didn't have any compassion. I was probably three or four or five years sober. And it struck me, it started, I started realizing how profoundly self-centered I was. You know, cause you're awake now and you start doing some stuff, you do some inventories and you're working with guys and you're identifying and, and you start really looking at yourself, you know. And it's not self-obsession, it's self-awareness. It's beginning to happen. Sunday I'm going to talk about 10 and 11. That's exactly what it's about. Um, and I shared in the meeting that I didn't have any compassion. Well, this woman, Catherine, in the meeting, she's kind of a strange woman. She dressed, she overdressed, she was a little weird. And when she would share in the meetings, it was a little bit off. It was kind of strange, but it's part of the reason you love AA, you know. It's like, yeah, I'm, an, I'm an old hippie from the 60s. Weird has always been attractive, you know. There's always some character that's just a little off, you know, just a little bit. She wasn't real bad, but she was a little strange. And she walked up to me after I shared, after the meeting was over, and she walked up to me and she goes, you have compassion? Said, How do you know that? She says, I know you do. You have compassion for me. <laughs> it was true, you know. I just felt something. And I hadn't noticed. I'm a drug addict, man. I want to, I want all the cells of my body to explode through the top of my head. That's Then I know I'm emotional. And they say we're children of chaos. When there's shit flying around the room, we're alive! You know? And what I've, de- what I've determined that my emotional nature is very quiet and it's subtle and I miss it all the time because I'm not paying attention. Emotions aren't dramatic. Dramatic things happen. But emotions aren't that. How I react to things isn't that. How I feel about you isn't that. I had a golf foursome that we played golf for a long time together. There were four of us. And one time we're hitting balls, getting ready to go play. And every time we'd go out and play with these guys, we're constantly making fun of each other through 18 holes, constantly. So I determined that I'm a little more spiritually advanced. And I I talked to them about, look, Guys, we love each other. Why don't we quit this chop fighting and just tell each other how we really feel and be really honest and quit just making fun of each other. It lasted one whole, maybe two. And we just couldn't stand it and we just started calling each other names and because that's how we love each other. And I think it somehow it should be different. I look at friendship and it should be like when I was nine or ten years old and some kid comes up to my door and knocks on the door and says, can Bill come out and play? And I'm 50, you know, and that's my perception of what friendship looks like, you know. Um, When we talk about intimacy in AA, usually we immediately go to sex. We think that sex is intimacy. No, it's not. 
Sex can be the celebration of intimacy in a relationship, that's for sure. It can be a celebratory thing. But in and of itself, it's not intimacy, it's just an act. It's a cool act, it's fun, you know. You know? But it's not what you and I, I think, are really looking for, you know. That's what I'm looking for. I want to be close. I just don't know how. I never learned. Nobody showed me, you know. I mean, my parents were two nice people, but they weren't huggy and touchy and stuff. They were kind of distant and aloof. I was an only child. They weren't particularly interested in what was going on in my life, but they were nice people. Nobody beat me or abused me or anything. Why I had the rage, I have no idea. But this intimacy, what an interesting thing. After the explosion at 10 years sober, what came out of that, I met my wife Karen. Karen and I have been together now 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So far. You know. And uh, we used to have screaming FU fights. Um, she's a sober woman. She was four years sober when I met her. And like I like to say is that I saved her from a life of aimlessly wandering from man to man. You know, I, it's kind of a, I had a sense of service. It was my duty. You know. And, uh, <clears throat> And we got together, and this year we'll have been married 20 years, but we've lived together for 25. And uh, I've never cheated on her. And after this whole collapse happened, when her and I got together, after about a year or so, it looked like we were going to stay together. It looked like this was we were going to give it a shot. I looked her right in the eyes, and I told her, I said, I swear to you, I will never cheat on you. I mean, this may not work out, but I will never. I've cheated on anybody I've ever been with, and I'm done. I'm just done. It's time for Bill to grow up. She thanked me. And she waited a day or two, thought it over evidently, and said the same thing to me. And I was relieved because I was waiting. She has a very checkered past. Are you going to take that off the tape? No. In this relationship, so what's happened to me is I realized at some point that I was really falling in love with you, that my heart had opened up somewhere along the line. Something happened, and my motivation changed. And I started, I think I was doing it before, but I hadn't noticed. I hadn't looked at it in this context where I really started caring about what was happening to you, what was, you know, what was uh, and I started really falling in love. And I started expressing myself that way. I took little baby steps. One of the things the sponsor told me when I went to him and asked him for help, I told him, I said, I think I should quit talking at meetings. I think there's too much ego in it. I am just way too carried away with myself. This is not good. This is not healthy. It's not a good thing. This isn't good for me. Maybe for someone else, but not for me. And I was really serious about that. I thought I should stop doing this. And his, his response to me was wonderful. I have the same sponsor. I've had the same sponsor for 34 years. I should have fired him several times, but he needs me now. <laughs> and he's very handy. And, uh, but what he said to me, he says, you don't get to pick and choose what you will and won't do. It's not up to you. If they ask you, you go. But I might suggest to you, why don't you start telling the truth? I said, I'm not lying. What do you mean? I'm not lying to people. He goes, quit doing theater, Bill, and talk about what's really going on. They've given you a forum for this. Why don't you use it? We will understand. You know, it's like, who do you think you're talking to? You know? And, and I suppose I really hadn't made that connection in a real way. It takes a while to where you make the connection of who you're really talking to. Like one time I thought, okay, I'm going to start talking about ego. That seems to be my big problem. And I was in this church in Scottsdale, Arizona, and there was a big Jesus on a cross right behind me. And this was the time of the Matrix movies. Remember Neo and the Matrix? I actually stood up at the podium and I held my arms out like this and I said, I'm Neo. I'm the one. <laughs> Guess you didn't see the movie. <laughs> but half the room groaned. And the other half laughed. <laughs> Everybody was identifying. 
You know, it's like, and I started doing stuff like this. I just started taking a risk and talking about what was really going on in my life, what was really happening, and what I was doing about it. I mean, it's an AA talk, man. It's about recovery, right? Well, what's recovery look like? Well, at 34 years sober, it's continuing, you know. It clearly hasn't stopped, you know, this growing up process, this intimacy thing, you know. When does it stop? When does it... Two years ago, February, I had a liver transplant. Ten years before that, I was going through interferon treatments to get rid of the hep C. And uh, I'm the only guy in AA with a bad liver. (laughs) Why me? (laughs) And I got really sick, and all the athleticism, the bicycle riding, all the stuff that was going on stopped. My life changed. It was a life-threatening situation. I went through the interferon. The rage came back. The rage came back. One night I got up from dinner, and my wife said, Could you please just take your plate to the sink? And I leaned over the table, and who the hell are you to talk to me that way? And I just launched. I just went on. scared the hell out of her. And I went downstairs in my office and waited to feel guilty, and I didn't. It was the old demon was back. And uh, she took me to the doctor the next day, took me in there, and she told him what was going on, and he said, this is a reaction to the chemicals. This is not your husband. And so he prescribed Xanax. This is, this is my liver doctor. He gave me a prescription for 150 Xanax with five refills. I told that to some dude out in the thing. He went, whoa! Whoa! So I walked out of the doctor's office, and I'm standing in the lobby, and she's standing there with me, and I had the prescription, and I just broke down and started crying. I said, baby, I don't know what to do. I can't help myself. I I don't know what to do. And she took the prescription. She goes, I'll fill the prescription. You go get your blood draw. And she did that for me and took me home and I went to the men's stag that night and said, I got drugs and I, I was just a mess and I couldn't take care of myself. Now when you're in a situation like that where you're supposed to be the strong one, right? And you're not. And you put yourself in the hands of another and they take care of you. Being on the other side of that coin where I'm the helper all the time when you need help, that's not so easy to do. Not so easy to do. Uh, we got through that, got rid of the hep C, and I had a liver transplant. My liver failed on me a few years after that, and I was very close to death. And I got registered in a liver program, and it wasn't clear that I was going to get a liver. And two years ago, February 24th, I was in the hospital for another reason, and this liver came in, and it was too large for the person that it was who's next in line. And I happened to be in the hospital, and I, my number came up. <clears throat> I'm I'm like going out. They're draining fluid out of me every two or three days. You know, five to seven liters of fluid out of me all the time. I'm gray. I'm ashen. I'm just I'm I'm dying. And I can report to you that what that feels like is, I was not afraid, and I don't think that's out of bravery. I just wasn't. I was just really disappointed. I didn't want it to end like this. I wasn't done yet, you know, and I'm 30 years sober. Why is this? I was just really disappointed. I didn't want it to be like this. And uh, and uh, so the doctor, the surgeon comes down the hall, and he walks in my room, and he looks me up and down because I'm big, right? And uh, he goes, I got a liver, and it's yours right now. Whoa! I used to say, this is what uh, surrender looks like, that I just said yes, and Karen goes, no, you didn't. You argued with him. <laughs> and I thought, I stopped and I thought, well, of course I did, you know. I, I need more information, you know. It's like, and 45 minutes later, I'm in surgery, right? So they take, they put me on a gurney, they roll me down there. My ex-wife, Mary, the one I cheated on when I was 10 years sober and uh, blew that marriage up, my son and his girlfriend and my wife, Karen, are with me. They let them come down into the surgery prior to me getting prepped. They were prepping me. So they were in there. So the surgeon comes out, and what I've learned to do in hospital situations when they're going to cut on you is hold their hand so that you're a real live person, you know. Make it personal. 
Uh, you know, and I, so I held the guy's hand. I said, look, I have all the faith in the world in you, and I'm not afraid. I want you to know that. You know, and he smiled at me, and he said, good, because we're really good at this. I went, good. It's good to hear. And I introduced him to my wife and my ex-wife and my son and his girlfriend. And they walked away, and the surgeon leans over me and goes, that's your wife and your ex-wife? I go, yeah. He goes, how do you do that? You know? The answer is Alcoholics Anonymous, right? That's intimacy. That ex-wife is like a sister to me. She always has been. We're as close as we ever were. We're not. She's the mother of my children. She comes to the house all the time. We have a house like that. She comes to the AA parties. She's around. She's part of my life. I can't live with that kind of resentment. So intimacy, how do you learn intimacy? Don't drink, stay alive. You know? <laughs> Go through the experience, pay attention. Awareness is everything. Awareness, awareness, awareness. That's all there is, awareness. Stay awake, be awake. One of the things that we learn around here is when we do that inventory, what we're looking for is that fourth column, right? What are my faults and mistakes? It's not about the other person. It's not clarifying the justifiable resentment. That's not what we're looking for, is it? That's the first time in our lives that we start taking responsibility for our own life. We cannot live life blaming other people for our lot in life. There is no peace. There is no contentment. There's no happiness. There is no intimacy in a life like that. I want to share something with you. I know we're... We're okay here? Um, just one second. I want to read you something. I looked up some stuff that I, I really like. And we'll just close with this. Uh, years ago, there was a very popular self-help book entitled Women Who Love Too Much. I never read the book, but the title continues to haunt me. <laughs> Is it actually possible to love too much? I think not. It is certainly possible to expect too much. It is possible to enter into a transactional relationship and get the short end of the deal. It is possible to be cheated and disappointed when the other person fails to deliver their end of the bargain. But that is not my vision of love. Love to me is totally selfless and non-transactional. Love like this is known in the giving rather than the getting. Giving everything, including yourself. It is impossible to give too much in such a relationship. It is impossible to be cheated when you expect nothing in return. To receive such love is to be totally accepted as you are. To give such love is to know peace. May it find you now. I think a lot of times we have arrangements as compared to relationships. We make arrangements with people, not a real relationship. Especially this one, my... um, with my wife, Karen, I've had to learn, and it hasn't been that difficult, but it's been rough, to accept her just exactly the way she is, which isn't very bad at all. I respect her. I care. I respect her as a person. You know, I could go down a list of her attributes. You know, if you've met her, you'd see them. She's wonderful, you know. She has a real problem with me eating food in the living room without a plate underneath it. She has a real problem. It's a problem. She needs to get over this, you know. And she nags the hell out of me, you know. And I'll tell you, don't ever give in to that. Uh, You know why? I'll tell you why. If you get the plate, she is then going to expect you to take it back into the kitchen. It doesn't stop there. She will then want you to rinse the damn thing off and then put it in the dishwasher. This is bullshit. This is all about control. And I'm telling you, this is a true story. And I get no support from any of the guys that I sponsor about this. Here's another quick thing. Some years ago, as I heard Don Pritz did this, uh, Tom Yule told me that, you know, Pritz did a fifth step with him. And Yule was shocked. He said, why would you, why do you want to do a fifth step? And, and Pritz said to him, you're family, aren't you? 
I drove all the way from Santa Fe back to L.A. thinking about that. I came home and I did an inventory and I called Matthew Mitchell and I said, I want to come over and do a fifth step with you. It's a guy I sponsored for a long time. And he goes, great, I'm speaking tonight, you can drive. (laughs) So I drove over to his house and I did a fifth step with him. We cried and stuff and then I got in the car and he let me be his ten-minute speaker. And uh, we switched roles which is what I want to do. I don't want to get stuck in this hierarchical thing where I'm the sponsor, you're the sponsor. It's real, I get it. Some, when you're new, that's the way it is, but it changes, it changes. And I don't need that egoic thing to support who I think I am. It's just not healthy for me. Plus, it's not real. You know, that isn't what I'm really looking for from you, you know? Here's one other thing, and I'll let you go. This is Ram Sue, one of my favorite scallywags, one of my teachers. You are perfect. Your every defect is perfectly defined. Your every blemish is perfectly placed. Your every absurd action is perfectly timed. Only God could make something this ridiculous work. Thank you very much. <laughs>